I'd like to invite up for this morning's message the good looking to what's my or to my what's cooking, Uncle Teacher Scott. Ah, classic, classic. That was some, that was some prime Denny right there, that he remembers the one week that we don't have basic. Yeah, usually, usually you'll see me sneaking along the sides, like trying to make eye contact with the youth, be like, "Come on, we gotta go. It's our time. It's our time." Um, but yeah, good morning, CLC. Uh, as was said, what's up, Josh? Uh, my name is Scott. I'm the youth ministry director intern here at CLC, and I'm thankful that I can join you all this morning as we reflect on God's word together. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, which in many ways is Jesus' magnum opus as a preacher, and hence why the Gospel of Matthew gives us such a detailed look. Now, I want to start out the message today a little differently. You may or may not know that I love stories. I love how a good story can touch your mind and heart in a way that no class or lesson ever could. So let's start with a special story that I wrote for today. In the 1890s, in a remote town, a village really, there lived a family with two sons and a daughter. The father worked in a nearby city at a factory that had only opened in the last 15 years. Unlike today, tuberculosis ravaged the land, and there wasn't a cure. Once you were diagnosed, it was just a matter of time until it consumed you, and that's why it was called consumption. At the ages of 13 to 7, their mother was taken by consumption. For a couple of years, they had an aunt who was able to watch over them while their father was away working at the factory. But tragedy struck again, and she was taken by consumption as well. The kids were left alone, and the elder brother, Timothy, was responsible for taking care of his younger siblings. At the age of 16, little Timothy didn't have any marketable skills, and he was too young to do hard labor. After weeks, unable to find a job to care for his siblings, little Timmy was losing hope. But then he had a brilliant idea. One thing he remembered while his mother was sick, his father would bring special medicine from the city to her. And after his mother died, he sold it to the neighbors. So little Timmy thought, if he took a little water, he mixed some plants in there, kind of modeled around a little bit for coloring, added some flavor and a little bit of pain relief, he could make something that pretty darn near looked like medicine. So the next week, he went around town to a family that had a daughter with consumption, and he offered him his medicine. They were willing to pay him a pretty penny for it. That's when Tim knew he'd hit a jackpot. He knew he could provide for his siblings, and all it took was a little bit of deception. And he felt a twinge of guilt, but it was okay. I mean, Tim needed the money to care for his family, and she was going to die anyway. And in the meantime, it would take away her pain a little bit and give the family some hope. Like, what could it hurt? And that's how Tim became the local physician. At first, it was only the consumption medicine, but it wasn't long before he started making all sorts of concoctions that looked different, selling them to anyone around neighboring towns in need. After a half a year, the inevitable happened, though. The people started to realize that his medicine wasn't doing anything, or would sometimes make his patients worse. And that's how Tim became the local charlatan. Tim started having to travel further and further to sell his wares. He had to escape his reputation so that people would trust him. He could make some money and bring it back for his family. I mean, he still had a brother and sister to support after all. One day in his travels, he found a family with consumption, and so he proffered his mixture ready to make his buck. When they informed him that they wouldn't need it, 
a doctor from a neighboring town already gave them some. And at first, Tim was frustrated that someone else beat him to it. But as he heard more, he was shocked to realize that this medicine worked. He asked for directions to the doctor's house, and he went there as fast as he could. Running up to the house, Tim saw that it was large and ornate, but he didn't let that stop him from banging down the door. Just... With Tim banging on the door, the doctor opened and was greeted by an out-of-breath, ruffled-looking young man. After a hurried conversation, Tim couldn't believe his ears. Not only had this doctor developed a medicine that actually worked, he was giving it away to anyone who needed it to fight the scourge of consumption for free. Timmy explained about his town one week's journey away and how consumption was a constant problem. The doctor gave him a case full of medicine, enough to last them a year, and welcomed Timmy back whenever he needed more. With hope filling his chest and with all haste, Timmy headed back to his hometown, excited to change the lives of everyone there. Waking well before dawn on the last day, he walked into town just as the day's activities began, and he started telling anyone who'd listen about his medicine. He'd found that death from consumption was defeated. But everyone brushed him off. No one wanted what he had for them. Even just trying to give it away, not a single soul accepted his offer. Backing against the wall of their town's church, Timmy slid down to the ground, put his face in his hands, and wept. So what are words worth? What does it mean when actions speak louder than words? And what can we learn from Timmy? Let's continue our dive into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and see what God will teach us today as people who are the salt and light to a wanting world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that you would be present here today, that your power would be made manifest in this room. I pray that you would speak through me this morning through this sermon. I pray that you would deliver a message that everyone here or watching online needs to hear. I pray that you would be meeting them where, where they are, um, that you would be teaching them what they need to hear, that they would be transformed to be made more and more like your son, that your name would be glorified across the world, that people would receive the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, thank you for giving us this morning that we can come together and worship you and study your word. Thank you for your power that is made perfect in our weakness. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so let's read the passage. It's a jam-packed five verses, Matthew 5, 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been carefully and gently teaching the multitudes about the true meaning of the law. He started by flipping the world upside down, telling us who the truly blessed are. He reminded us that we as his people are the salt and light in the world, and now he's talking about the law. The law that will continue to stand, but not the law that the Pharisees were teaching. Jesus is opening the eyes of all who will listen 
to how deep and profound the law that had been forgotten truly is. Jesus is showing how when we are looking to God, we see so much more than words on a page or simply lines to stay behind. To clarify for us, Jesus continues with his pattern. You heard that it was said, dot, 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 versus, but I tell you, dot, dot, dot. So let's start with what was said again. Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. All right. At face value, this seems very reasonable. Why would God give us this law? Well, plain and simple, because people lie to each other, right? Therefore, the law says that if you make a vow to the Lord, if you take an oath to obligate yourself with a pledge, you must not break your word, but do everything that you said you would. And if you swear falsely by the Lord's name, you will be guilty in the sight of heaven. Wow, okay, that's pretty intense, but it's also very cut and dry. Makes sense. Don't swear falsely. Okay, cool, we're on board. So let's look at what Jesus is highlighting to show us the added layers that a simple legalistic interpretation would have left us without. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So why would Jesus say this? Let's look at some background. Outside of the biblical text, the Pharisees had tried to provide more guidance for the Israelites, you know, to help them out when they're trying to figure out what they can and can't do. The whole purpose was so that people would have a clear understanding of what would or would not transgress the law. The Pharisees actually devised a set of rules for which oaths were binding and which were not. So if you, if you swear on the temple by chance, it's not binding, you're good to go. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, ah, okay, that's binding, that's binding, so you gotta remember that one. If you swear on the altar, it's not binding, but if you swear by the gift on the altar, ah, okay, that, one, that one's binding, right? So they had this whole list of rules just to, to help people figure it all out, because it wasn't, sometimes not super clear. But the problem, as mentioned before, is that people lie. So people took these helpful guidelines, but they bent and they twisted them. And instead of seeking to honor God, the goal was to swear fancy and pompous oaths with no intention of keeping them, and without having to weather the wrath of swearing falsely. Ta-da! Magic! Right? You get all the good, none of the bad. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. All the pomp, none of the consequence. So long as they avoided the right things, they were, going to, they were good to go. But what does this do? It makes a difference where there isn't one. It undermines the solemnity of oaths in the first place. Oath-making became glib and meaningless, like words on the wind. It's crazy how utterly sacrilegious in the eyes of God and dishonorable to their fellow man this is, too. Like, they're basically making eye contact with God and inching as close as they possibly can to the line they think that God doesn't want them to cross, right? It's like five-year-olds, they're just trying to get away with as much as they possibly can without getting in trouble. It's like you tell your child, hey, don't eat those cookies that I just made. And so it's like they lick them instead. And you're like, well, I mean, I guess technically you didn't eat them, but also you know that that's not what I wanted you to do, right? Like, you, you see what you're doing here. So by swearing these oaths to their fellow man, they're manipulating those around them. They're making promises and gaining people's trust, knowing full well they're going to drag that person through the dirt by breaking that oath. So that's the context that Jesus is speaking into when he says that we should not swear any oaths, 
but simply yet let our yes be yes and our no be no. We can't undermine the power of our words. We are here as the salt and the light, as people who are the hands and feet of God, bearing witness to his glory, witness to the word became flesh who dwelt among us. So why does this matter? Well, there are two pieces at play here, our vertical relationship and our horizontal relationships. Vertically, our relationship and promises before the Lord our God, and horizontally, our trustworthiness and our integrity dictate our relationships with those around us. So what does this look like for us today? Starting with what it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we can't swear any oath, like in a courtroom, for example, right? People are untrustworthy, and adding weight and consequence is unfortunately necessary in the world that we live in. But it does mean that we as followers of Christ should take what we say very seriously, outside, even outside of an oath. So first, let's look at that vertical relationship. Thinking about our relationship with God, we are called to be like Christ, to be like God. Got a little bit of spoilers here for you, but if you've read ahead, you already know this. Later in the passage, Christ will call us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. God is perfectly trustworthy. He has perfect integrity. As God's children adopted into his family, intimacy with our Father is our most cherished possession. And when we live without integrity, we are driving a wedge directly into that relationship, sacrificing something that cannot be compared or replaced. The thing about being perfect and living with integrity is that it's impossible. I know there are many things in my life that I meant to do, but I just never did, right? Like in college, there was this classmate that I grabbed lunch with my freshman year, and every year after that, I'd see her around campus, and every time, we'd stop, we'd chat for a little bit, and then when we went on our way, we'd always say like, hey, we should grab lunch again sometime. Uh, yeah, so that was like three years, probably like 15, 20 times of doing that. We never grabbed lunch uh, before graduating, actually. Um, for basic last year, we had a competition at a barbecue event, and the winning team, they won some boba that would be given at an unspecified future time. And time went on, and we still hadn't made our delivery. So Gemma actually loved reminding us that we still had to do this. Uh, I think it was almost every time we'd see her be like, hey, I don't think you've given us our boba yet. And we'd be like, I know, we're going to do it eventually, right? I, I only made the delivery on New Year's Eve. Uh, yeah, Gabe only got his last Friday, like like three days ago. Sorry, Gabe. Um, so that was like seven or eight months late, right? It's like, I guess better late than never. But like these things all count when we think about our integrity, right? It's tough to be perfect. So how wonderful that we can turn to a God that is trustworthy with everything, no matter how big or how small. If you read the Old Testament, God makes a lot of promises. He keeps every single one. He made promises to Abraham, to all of the promises of the coming Jesus, our Messiah. God has been faithful. Whether he made a promise to the world or to one person, he has been faithful. He gave us the good news that we can be adopted into his family, saved from our sins, and have eternal life in him through the power of Jesus Christ. And that's a promise you can build your life on. I know I do. So let's contrast that with the world that we live in. We live in a culture where there is a vacuum of trust. Look around you. Who are you supposed to trust? We got politicians, you know, 
They're just known as manipulators who will say whatever they need to in order to get elected. Sounds decent. News broadcasters. I mean, there's so much partisanship and spin that you can't take any major news channel at face value. They have an agenda. The CDC. In the midst of a global pandemic, the CDC has gone back and forth on some of the fundamental information about the situation, confusing huge groups of people and leaving doubts whenever they release a statement. Even the church is not seen as trustworthy these days. I just listed some of the biggest institutions that are supposed to provide trustworthy information that serves as the foundation for life decisions, and none of them are seen as broadly trustworthy. A little closer to home, of course we hope our doctors and dentists have our best intentions in mind when they're treating us, right? But is that always the case? I got a root canal last year, and the dentist gave me some options for the type of crown I got. The typical metal alloy one, or this new ceramic one that's like kind of fancy. And I was like, ooh, fancy. So I'm an engineer by trade, right? You'd think that I would know stuff about this type of thing. I know nothing about crowns. I actually don't know how that's supposed to work at all. Um, so what did I do? I asked for his recommendation, and I got the ceramic one. I trusted him. I mean, did he have my best interest in mind? I sure hope so, but I'd never know the difference, and he stands to gain by me buying the expensive option. Okay, on a personal level, has anyone here ever had a promise broken, been betrayed? When I was younger, I was an exceptionally private person. I never wanted to open up to people, especially if it had anything to do with romance or crushes. When I was in college, I was coming out of my shell a little bit, and I was visiting a family friend's house for Mother's Day. Since my family lived out of the country, she had been like a second mother to me growing up. While I was there, she asked if I had met any girls, you know, like the typical classic auntie-type question, Right? And after some internal wrestling, I told her about the crush I had at the time. Now, this might not seem like a big deal to you, but this was a huge deal for me. Right? It was like, wow, what a step of faith. <clears throat> and I told her, do not, under any circumstance, tell my mom. So lo and behold, I found out a couple weeks later that's exactly what she did. And I was furious. I felt hurt and betrayed, and I knew that I'd never trust her like that again. Once that trust is broken, once your integrity is no longer seen as solid, it's all but impossible to gain that trust back. There's no greater fraud than a promise not kept. So massive institutions, essential professionals, and personal relationships. Imagine the world if you couldn't trust any of them. The constant doubt and second guessing, You'd have to worry about being taken advantage of. You couldn't take anyone's recommendation. You'd have to be suspicious when anyone offered you something. Everyone here has felt the need to talk about a personal matter that you're dealing with so that you can you know, work things out a little bit, right? Just think out loud. Well, in this world without trust, you have to assume that they're going to share it with anyone they want to. Nothing is private once it's shared. Think back to that story I told at the beginning. Timothy arrived with literally life-saving medicine that he was ready to give away for free. At face value, how could anyone say no to that? But Timothy had poisoned his relationships with everyone in town due to his lack of integrity so that even when he showed up with life-saving medicine, no one wanted it from him. They aren't looking to get scammed again. Why would they trust him? 
even though he has something so, so good. That's nothing different from what they've heard before. And you know what they say, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And it's the same for us when we're sharing the gospel. If we are not seen as trustworthy people, how can we expect people to receive the gospel message from us? It's life-changing. It turns your world upside down. It's good news, the best news. And yet, sometimes we can be a barrier to people's acceptance of the gospel. We have medicine that will give them eternal life and wholeness, deliverance from sin and death, but our reputation can prevent people from trusting the cure. Now let's look at the flip side of that. If you know someone with steadfast integrity, that relief of knowing that you can trust that person to the end, it's priceless. Someone who lives with integrity, someone who proves to be a solid rock, trustworthy, someone not making empty promises, they're like a breath of fresh air in a world where everything else needs to be second-guessed. That's where we ought to be as Christians. We ought to be the people who aren't hiding our intentions. We aren't blindsiding people with false promises. We are sheep among wolves. We're innocent as doves. So that's the big idea for today. Our trustworthiness paves the path for people to trust God and the gospel. Our trustworthiness paves the way for people to trust God and the gospel. So let me ask you, are you someone that people can trust? Something small and every day I was thinking on. When you're talking with a brother or a sister and you say at the end, I'll be praying for you, can they trust that you actually will? I know it's tough for me to remember sometimes, but it's something that I'm wanting to work on. Something big and existential here at CLC. What's our mission? We said it like 20 minutes ago. To make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world, right? We say these words every week. But how are we really showing ourselves trustworthy in participating in the mission? How are you making disciples? How are you growing in your own discipleship and relationship with God? I started thinking about this recently, and it challenged me to think and reflect. I realized I've been neglecting some of my relationships at CLC. And if we, the church, already know we can trust in God's faithfulness, let's embody that faithfulness so others can find him too. To end, when life has got you down, remember that you can trust in God's promises. No one and no thing is more trustworthy than our God. Run to him in times of trials. If you're reflecting and worried about your flagging trustworthiness or you're simply feeling distant from Jesus, he has promised that he will welcome you back with open arms. Christ lived for us. He died for us. And we are adopted into his family. God does not lie. He does not swear falsely. Turn to your father and he'll welcome you back like you never left. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful that we can trust you in everything in our lives. Whether it's big or small, we know that you will be faithful. We know that you will be um, watching out for us, that you have our, our best intentions at heart. And Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us at CLC as we want to embody that same trust, as we want to be people who others can see as trustworthy. And I pray that 
our trustworthiness would open doors, would open the ways for people to find you, to be able to trust in you, to trust in your word, to trust in your gospel, because nothing else can be more powerful than that. We love you, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.